Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. On today's NASIO Voices, we are joined by none other than Virginia CIO Nelson Moe. Nelson has been CIO in Virginia since 2015, and his career includes serving in the U.S. Navy as a nuclear submarine officer, time in the private sector, and 14 years working with the U.S. House of Representatives, including serving as CIO for the House. Nelson, welcome to NASIO Voices. Thanks for joining us today. Amy, thank you for having me. So let's start off talking a bit about your background and something that's a little unique to state CIOs. You are a graduate of the Naval Academy and worked on a nuclear submarine. Tell us about that and any lessons you learned from your time in the Navy that you think have transferred over to your career in IT. Sure. Uh, to put it in perspective, I graduated uh, from the Naval Academy in the early 80s, you know, 1981. And the Cold War was still on with the Soviet Union. So submarine life was very stressful, as you can imagine and highly mission-focused. That uh, experience annealed me with a strong work ethic and personal resiliency. I spent most of my first sea tour uh, deployed underway. It was my first exposure to critical engineering operations and uh, engineering service discipline. Think processes, failover testing, mean time repair, and failure. It was a world-class training experience, and I was in a submarine all over the world from the Indian Ocean all the way to the North Pole. It helped me in IT because it it helped me develop real strong leadership skills, both hard and soft skills, and learned the value of delegating to smart people. So, Nelson, as we mentioned in our introduction, prior to being appointed CIO in Virginia, you spent 14 years working for the House of Representatives here in D.C., eventually serving as CIO for the House. Also, a fun fact for you, Amy and I both worked in the House of Representatives at different times, and you overlapped with both of us. But can you tell us about that experience? Uh, sure. First of all, it was a privilege to, to serve on staff at the House of Representatives. I started there as a line manager in February 2001 and rose through the rank of CIO and very senior staffer in my 14 years there. It was and still is a very unique environment. I'd like to call out my experience uh, during the anthrax event, the Senator Daschle letter, we called it, it happened uh, in October of 2001. And then the 9-11 events. And I can't stress it hard enough. It were, these were career-defining episodes for me and a lot of people. And it showed me what is truly possible when people and organizations are motivated for the national good. We supported 441 separate hiring offices. And for the IT people, every single office had their own individual active directory administrator. There was roughly 12,000 users, but it had a 24 by 7 national presence with over 850 remote offices and for members of Congress, the House is separate than the Senate and I was on the House side. And it spanned more than 10 time zones. What was similar was, the, the although smaller in scale, it was the need for infrastructure technology, storage and email and, and those types of things. There was also high expectations for liability and capacity. There was a wide diversity, same, same need for wide diversity for the, the 441 separate offices for demands. The risk model was same. Uh, IT staff uh, are very risk adverse uh, in a political environment for obvious reasons. And we had the same type of oversight uh, from committees and, and inspector general. What was totally different is the, the support approach in IT governance. It was geared primarily to give the members of the Congress much more autonomy and control of the end unit and devices. The systems and policies were set up 
to provide House Representatives a contained IT environment. Members wanted more control of their own office assets. What was also different was the budgeting and procurement processes were totally different now. The, the House of Representatives doesn't follow the federal acquisition rules, guidelines are, are, uh, are that, guidelines. And in Virginia, we have obviously the Virginia Public Procurement Act. The cost approach is different. The focus at the House of Representatives is to maximize the members' options and choice and continuity of government, think big G. And here it's been mostly return on investment and being cost effective. It is interesting hearing you mention that. I mean, just from from my experience working on the Hill, each office was, you know, set up as sort of their own kingdom, right? And yeah. so separate it, hiring authority. Yeah. Exactly. And so from an IT perspective, you mentioned that, you know, members and their and their staff ultimately wanted more say in technology and and how they could do that. From a I guess from a security perspective, did that present any challenges for you as CIO? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I'm not sure how much I can go in detail with your listeners here. It has been some time. I've been out, out of the house for five years, although I still have contacts there. But it presented unique security challenges. All the actors that are out there in the world target members of Congress, obviously for their their individual and then their their support on committees. You know, Intel Committee, Appropriations, Transportation. Sure. So their targets and their families are targets. And so we had extremely good cybersecurity efforts and systems and postures and support from the three-letter agencies. I can't go into too much detail here, but that was that was important. The front lines, being on the front lines of a lot of people wanted to throw rocks at you, both activists like anonymous and nation states. It, it, you got really good at finding out who could help you with that. You're bringing back some memories for me. I started working on the Hill in 2004, and one of my many duties over my four years there was systems administrator. And I remember having to back up our server with tapes every night. So I was glad when we didn't have to do that anymore, but um, <laughs> it was a, a different era for sure. So Nelson, let's talk a bit about your current role as CIO for the Virginia Information Technologies Agency or VITA, which you have held since 2015. What are your top priorities there at the moment? Yeah, moving from a, the single supplier uh, model we had with our incumbent to a multi-supplier model for the infrastructure services has been a massive effort and a massive win for the Commonwealth. It was a culmination of five years of work and it actually started before I got here. So it transcended two CIOs. We recently finished the final step in, in the business case, kind of bookended it. We borrowed a significant amount of money to go through the process and bring new suppliers on and to uh, exit out the incumbent. We borrowed at one time total of $165 million. And just a few weeks ago, we paid off the last little bit of it before this fiscal year ended, which was July 1st. So we paid it off on time. And I can't emphasize how important it was from a business case perspective to go through all this after five years, get the support of the General Assembly and the governor's office for two sessions and two governors, and then come through with that. The financial team that John Ozevic has worked wonders to get that done. So I can't, I'm very proud of them. Mm-hmm. The next step is to mature this model and get it ready for the next round of procurement. So it's getting better and better. Obviously, for priorities, we have cybersecurity. We have an election coming up, actually one this year and one next year. We're moving dramatically in the cloud, the different services, software, platform infrastructure, both public and private. And modernization, we have an aggressive approach to work off uh, any technology that, that we've inherited. My own agency is going through a transformation. VITA is the IT agency for the Commonwealth, and we're transforming it from a structure perspective uh, along with this thing. I'm very happy that I have three direct reports that are highly competent and, and are working through the issues in cybersecurity, 
operations and administration. And, and Dan Wolf acts as my chief of staff to help me with when I have problems like I don't know where it goes. He, he helps me with that. Mm-hmm. Other priorities are we're still transitioning into state police into the model. And we have large scale healthcare projects. And for procurements, we're focusing on ad- addressing the needs of small businesses with Executive Order 35. So that's a nutshell. Um, I have seven pages. I go through my direct reports every day with Don, but uh, essentially that's it. Uh, one of the bigger projects we're doing as we move to cloud is we are, are leaving our data center here to move into a, a commercially run data center. So the lease is up here in a little over 18 months, and we're looking forward to moving on. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about first one that you talked about. I know Virginia was one of the first states in the country to completely outsource IT. And you talked about this multi-sourcing model that you have moved towards. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you think that the, you know, what the future of the outsource model would be across the country, perhaps? Sure. I'm glad to do that. So first of all, started to get this right, 2005 or 2004, but it was groundbreaking at the time, transformative and a true example of leadership at the executive branch and legislative branch at the time. And to be fair, the former incumbent in this private public partnership brought $360 million to invest in Commonwealth to make it happen. You know, fast forward to today, uh, the Commonwealth is, is in this multi-sourcing model and take the full advantage of what I believe is the, the future, at least in the near-term horizon of the CIO as a broker, where they handle a lot of different services, but not necessarily own the individual. We arrange for it, then move on. The multi-source integrator model and the multi-tower model allows for agile service injection at what I call speed and scale, and as well allows us to target legacy systems for modernization. We have the, and I'll say this many times, we have the visibility and leverage to get, get it done. The other thing is the downstream agencies like VDOT or Department of Social Services or DMV, they have a direct seat at the table to vet issues with the suppliers. That involvement, what didn't exist in the prior model, and it's directly today. In fact, we have a meeting this week uh, with what's uh, called Relationship Management Council, and they have an opportunity, agencies have an opportunity to vet their issues directly. This type of effort takes years, and it took top-down support from the legislative branch and executive branch and commitment. And it's a long journey. We're still into it. The state police and Department of Emergency Management are finishing their transformations and are getting ready to move on to the next generation of contracts. But the current model is in place. It provides visibility into the cost model and the leverage for post-award contracts, and that's the key. And we're just starting to see the benefits. It's difficult to do, but it's worth it if you consider the alternative. Mm -hmm. And the future, you mentioned that. The future, and you could put a horizon on it, but states have to do their own return on investment and value calculus for themselves. At the root of the decision process, and I've, I've had a chance to testify in front of Congress, Committee on Government Modernization, it's what I call the differentiation discussion and risk assignment determination. What I mean by differentiation is, is, that, is why, why would you want to be in this business at all as a government? You know, governors don't get elected based on the number of data centers that are managed by their staff. It's not a differentiator. What's differentiator is the services they provide to their citizens. So if it's not a differentiator, you know, you know, outsource it. But that's a calculus every state will have to do based on how much they're willing to put into it. And then risks. I mean, be clear about public sector employees and their stakeholders are not incentivized, either money or career advancement, to take a project risk of this nature. The private sector does, and they compute that in their risk profit model and their decisions. The key is to work through this and understand it with your stakeholders and come up with the, the drive to get it done. And the future, there may be some mixed bag here. Some states may focus more on a software as a service model to move their compute versus uh, invest the time and energy into a, an integrated approach. But 
to, for speed and scale for a converged environment like ours, where every single agency that is executive branch, over 63 of them, they get their infrastructure services through one entity, the MSI tower model is the way to go. Yeah, and it's been interesting talking to a bunch of different CIOs on on this podcast about different operating models and whether or not they have autonomy to be able to make those massive, large-scale changes. And then the other thing that Amy and I uh, seem to always talk about is uh, just the tenure, how many new CIOs we have. And you are certainly uh, one of the elder statesmen at this point. But one of the things I I did want to ask you about, Nelson, is Virginia is unique in a, a lot of wonderful ways. But interestingly, governors can only serve one consecutive term. So for you, that will always mean a new governor is coming in every four years. You survived one transition already. Congratulations on that. Were there any challenges with that transition? Sure. First of all, thank you for the question. Uh, and to put it in perspective, it was exceedingly challenging. We need to keep in mind to paint the picture that during the latter part of last administration and also the beginning of the current administration, we were still in active litigation, $300 million lawsuits with our service model and uh, our incumbent. And we had significant service delivery kerfuffles. So that was ongoing during the election. After the election of the current administration, we needed to communicate quickly and effectively with the new governor's cabinet, new governor, and establish those new relationships and to move forward with this transition project and address the ongoing litigation. We were under the gun because the 13-year contract with the incumbent was ending during the first year or so of the new administration and time was running out. So we were under a gun to get this done, to move on because we didn't have a parachute. So bring up the new administration with speed as well as conduct a court mandated messaging transition for 60,000 users all during a general assembly session was exciting to say the least. <laughs> so the, to put it in place, we were able to get the support to move on. The new administration came in in January, and we had less than 90 days to implement, to brief and implement a plan, which exited out the incumbent and brought in the new service providers. Uh, we issued a termination for convenience, I believe, in May of that year. We completed our, in, in April, the migration new email services. We had a walk-in takeover place by our current integrator, SCIC, uh, where they had it all for about two, almost three months. And then they transitioned to the other six contracts. So the amazing about this was the contractual, I'll use the word gymnastics. And secondly, SCIC, the integrator, has to be commended for masterfully handling the double shift in staff move. So if you were a server person under NG in one month, three months, a month later, that, the next day you work for SCIC for three months. And then the day after that, three months, you work for Unisys. So wow. that double hop for hundreds of people for 500 people was amazing. We had a very low attrition rate. The fact we didn't lose a significant amount of core knowledge in that was astounding and not guaranteed. Wow. Uh, the other one is there, getting back to communication. We actually have to obviously respond to the, the new administration's initiatives. And that's turned into broadband equity, diversity and equity inclusion, on, uh, specifically on websites and executive order 47. We're highly focused on workforce development and growing the economy here in Virginia, diversifying it. Specifically in small businesses, small women-owned businesses, Executive 35 is in, indicative of that. And we're right now, obviously, we're working through COVID-19 and the phase phase responses. But that's that's what happened in a, in a very short period of time. So in this particular job, it has not been for the faint of heart. <laughs> it, it does not sound like it. But, you yeah. know, it sounds like everyone made the best of a, a yeah. tough situation. 
I will, I will end with this. It could not have been possible without a significant number of dedicated people on the Vita staff for the end goal to get, to get to this model. Uh, highly dedicated. I cannot be proud of them. And it harkens back to the days on board my submarine when we all knew that we were going toe-to-toe with the Soviets. My point is, is that it was that level of dedication and commitment and professionalism that was indicative every single day for a better part of three years. That's excellent. Speaking of COVID-19, which you mentioned a minute ago, there's been a lot of talk among CIOs about how it affected the state workforce and, you know, having to send people home to work. Do you think that for Virginia, it will change the future of the state workforce for government? Amy, the way I'll answer that is I think, yes, at least in the short term, you really don't know how these are going to work out in the long term. Um, but put a box on horizon for the next two years or something like that. I certainly believe, at least for the foreseeable future, and certainly this administration, my guess is we'll see a significant amount of retained work from home or teleworking efforts, in addition to COVID-19, but also people realize they can work and they kind of like it. So yeah. uh, we've had to work through a bunch of issues. Again, the professionalism of, of adapting to that has been astounding. Again, the specifics on that if you want to, but we've had to have a renewed discussion, need for modernization and broadband uh, locally and cybersecurity to provide uh, patching for remote issues. So I, I think there'll be more of that, uh, more teleworking, work from home, work from alternative locations, at least in the near future being the next 12 to 18 months. After that, we will have to see, but I you know, believe that agencies have seen that and may offer that as a benefit uh, as long as the processes are there for that. Yeah. At the end of the day, Vita specifically, as as a lot as all the agencies are, we're looking for a measured and safe return to the worksite, following best practices from the administration, Department of Human Resources Management, and CDC and Virginia Department of Health. Our primary focus, certainly at Vita, is to minimize risk to employees and the field technical staff. Right. So in terms of COVID-19 from an IT perspective, what has your team been focusing on lately and what are your biggest challenges that you're still facing right now? Well, we focused primarily initially on massively changing the capacity for us for people working from home, both in VPN, a technology called Zscaler, laptops, and DocuSign. Sure. Uh, we, we went from 5,000 connections to 35,000, so seven-fold increase in a matter of weeks, and then increased the bandwidth around it. That's, that's largely done now, and it's stable. So mm-hmm. now we're focusing on you know, the other business processes. Our Department of Vehicles are opening up. You know, what's that look like when you have remote workers? So we're reaching out to all the agencies in different forms, say, what does this new business process in this, I'll call it the new normal, look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, so our biggest challenge right now is to make sure we connect. People are taken care of. There's half people. What are business process changing? Like the Department of Corrections, what are they doing? Those things. So we're, uh, the challenge is, is re- leaning in and being proactive on uh, uh, helping the 63 agencies work through their, any issues they might have. Great. And, you know, Nelson, I think it related to COVID, we've seen, you know, a lot of legacy IT systems that have been inundated with, you know, massive amounts of increase in traffic and specifically talking about unemployment insurance systems. And I think that's really led to this growing conversation on Capitol Hill in recent weeks, I would say probably the last month or so about the need for IT modernization and dedicated funding for that in the states. Can you discuss Vita's role in your own modernization efforts? Sure. So, so Vita's monitoring its own technology, its own agency. That's one thing. So I, I have my own agency technology here, but I'm also involved highly with the modernization for the infrastructure and application support for the, the executive branch agencies, all 63 of them. So that's, that's almost a billion dollars a year total spend. 
Wow. We do it through several things. One is I'm in charge of deploying and approving. Uh, I'm in charge of approving every single agency's, individual agency's IT strategic plan. Also, the Commonwealth's IT strategic plan, I developed that and I submit that for the Secretary of Administration to approve. So large-scale strategic planning on where we're going to go in the next three to five years. That's our modernization and address legacy systems. We also manage legacy systems through the tower platform, the integrator, SAIC, and the tower providers. So there is a modernization in their contracts to go through and work off the technology debt. So there's modernization in there by contract. We also do governance. When we have governance, I am, I'm the IT procurement officer for the Commonwealth. So I have procurement governance and also project management governance. You know, hey, how do projects done so we can make sure that the money is well spent, effectively spent when we do actually do a modernization. Also do it through standards. I'm code mandated for to uphold standards in IT architecture, IT architecture and cybersecurity. And also the overall role of advocate with the suppliers. I reach out and find out what's going on in different forms. One of them is NASIO. And I also go to Gartner and those types of things. Yeah, that's great. So as Matt mentioned earlier, tongue in cheek about your status as elder statesman of CIOs, since we have had so many CIOs in the last year or so, do you have one key piece of advice or lesson learned that you can impart to your fellow colleagues? Well, to put this in perspective, I know my staff is going to cringe when I say this. I still have my high school slide rule, and <laughs> I, can, I can remember graduating from college and not having to wear a seatbelt. <laughs> uh, to put things in perspective, so I've been uh, I've been privileged to be in this role for a little over five years. Earlier this month, I was at my five-year mark, but I think the median time in service for state CIOs is under 20 months. And so my advice for them, if you're asking for what I think would be advice for them, is is as CIOs that go through. I think we had 25 or 28 cycle in the last uh, year and a half. Yeah. is that with, with that is you need to be realistic. You need to be realistic in what you get done. I've been privileged to be here long enough to be through two governors and go through an implementation of a large-scale project, which is phenomenal in size and scope. So be realistic in what you get done. And it's hard to implement a plan unless you're doing a procurement in that time frame. So my advice is use NASI and its contacts and those types of resources. Generate uh, relationships as fast as you can with stakeholders, both the state level, suppliers, uh, General Assembly, and CIOs. And you need to balance the short-term wins with long-term goals to set up the next CIO, to be, to be fairly honest. I mean, it, and that's part of my job now is to make sure, okay, who knows what's going to happen in 18 months. I'm at will employee. I'm a direct gubernatorial appointee. But I'm setting this up to make sure we're successful for the years to come. Yeah, great. All right, Nelson. So it is time to switch gears a little bit. and. Sure. We like to end our podcast episodes with something we call the lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of non-IT questions. Are you ready, sir? Absolutely, sure. All right. First question. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to and why? Sure. I'm assuming I'm just a visitor and I'm not going to make any changes. <laughs> and I, sure. I picked a time frame. I, I, I think about this. I want to pick a time frame where I, I know I could eat the food and there's modern dentistry and, um, <laughs> and anesthesiology. So I picked July 16th, 1969. That's the Apollo 11 launch. Sure. I was 10. It was magical. You cannot beat a Saturn V launch. <laughs> it's a really, there's a really good answer. Um, and I like that you put a lot of thought into modern dentistry and anesthesiology. So bonus Nobody points for that one. Nobody thinks of that. <laughs> no one does. Um, hey, man, there, there are probably bigger events in life, but if you get a toothache and they go up there with a hammer, uh, not, not having that, man. Uh, very, very, very astute answer. 
Second question, what TV show or movie are you currently watching? Well, good question there. I'm really not watching too much TV. I'm down here in my little apartment, and so I really didn't splurge too much with a TV arrangement down here. So I'm, I work down here in Richmond, but my house is up in Alexandria, so I'm really not having too much TV. So it's really kind of a Spartan thing. I try to watch old classic movies, and I read some classics. I'm rereading the Milton's, Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, wow. my, okay. even not my, my graduate studies book on digital signal detection theory. Uh, kind of exciting <laughs> how cell phones really work. Okay. I'm sure I'm sure that's helping you get to sleep at night. Interesting. All right. Last question. And this kind of goes back to your time in the Navy and being able to yeah. see the world. And Amy and I are certainly ready to get back and figure out how we can go on vacation and travel. Where is your favorite place you've you've been before? Well, I was born and raised in Montana, so I would just drive around there for a long time. I, I had a chance to be, I was in scouting and swimming, and so I had a chance to see the vast majority of the state. You know. and it is a beautiful state. When things do get back to normal, what place would you like to visit that you've never been before? I've never been to Scotland, and I'd like to play around at St. Andrews, you know, the birthplace of golf. Yep. Let me know. I would I would love to join you. All right, Nelson. Well, I just want to say thank you for giving us your time today. And also thank you for all of your support for NASIO. Nelson is a member of our executive committee and you're always there to answer the call when we have one. So thank you so much. This is a great conversation and we really appreciate it. Amy and Matt, thank you for your time and thank you for having me. Thanks, Nelson. Thanks again for listening to NASIO Voices. I know times are strange right now, but we really appreciate everyone who's listening, downloading, and subscribing to the podcast. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon.